0: The following comes from the Silstein Power Hour, formerly the Silstein Author Channel, through Podbean.com. Let's get started. Here we go. Good morning. Welcome to the Sil- Sylvia Stein Power Hour brought to you by potbean.com, formerly known as the Sil Stein Author Channel. We're still focusing on author writing tips and interviews and promos and a lot of other wonderful things for writers, but I wanted to update the name uh, because you know I, I do enjoy the Sil Stein Author Channel, but you know, a friend of mine and also you know, colleague, she, uh, mentioned, you know, you should really work on a logo for your show. And she came up with this great name, the Sylvia Stein power hour. Thank you so much, Jackie Chin. She is a great mentor, you know, and I, I have the pleasure of working with her and she, you know, she brings up a lot of these great ideas. And I want to send a shout out to her for help for her help today through uh for this name and the the way the direction of where my podcast is going thank you so much and shout out to her and good morning everyone as i mentioned today um i will be bringing you part two of the dazzling dialogue I, i was so pleased to see how many people tuned in um to listen to the first part i do apologize for some reason some people had sound issues and i wanted to test the sound today to make sure that doesn't happen again today with the second portion of what I have today for the, uh, for this book, how to write dazzling dialogue, the fastest way to improve any manuscript. And as I said before, this is a great book that you can purchase. I have the, uh, I have it in the Kindle edition, but you're able to purchase it on paperback through Amazon. I want to get my paperback copy of it but I wanted to let you all know this is a great book for all of us that always need to improve in some ways uh, on our dialogue. It's how to write dazzling dialogue, the best way to improve any manuscript by James Scott Bell. And, um, today we're going to be focusing on the next portion of, we, we discuss what dialogue is and isn't. And today we're going to go into story weaving, the true art of dialogue. And he explains that dialogue in fiction has five functions. One or more of the following must always be at work or you're just taking up space. Uh, Reveal story information, you're revealing character, set the tone, set the scene and reveal a theme. So today I'm gonna try to cover this section, it's chapter three in the book and we're gonna start with story information. So let's begin with that. Okay, let me see here. Okay, he begins by saying, exposition is necessary in fiction, though not as much as many writers think. What we mean by exposition is information that is necessary for the reader to understand what's going on in the story, he says. And there are two ways to deliver this information through narrative or through dialogue. Narrative is sometimes employed because it's best to get the information out of the way and move on with a story like this. So he gives an example, Frank was a box boy at Jelson's where he'd worked for 10 years. So here he's given a narrative, a brief narrative. As he explains, uh, James Scott Bell says, there are two ways to deliver this information, through narrative or through dialogue. So here, he's giving you the narrative on it. Now, another way to do it is to put the information with a narrative that is um, reflecting the character's inner life. So um, he's giving the through narrative or through dialogue. So here, he's doing the narrative that is reflecting on the character's inner life. So let's read it. Frank hated being a box boy at Chelsea's, 10 lousy years of this drudgery. So here he's kind of explaining a little bit more. Okay, the first one says Frank was a box boy at Jelsons where he'd worked for ten years. The second part of it, the the character's inner life, he says Frank hated being a box boy at Jelsons. Ten lousy years of this drudgery. So he continues, dialogue is sometimes the more artful way to reveal story information. But here's the key, he says. The reader must never catch you simply feeding them exposition. And then he explains this. Here's what I mean. He says, I see this type of dialogue in beginning manuscripts all the time. One character talking to another character, but a little bit of info is slipped to the reader in a clunky fashion. As in, hello, Arthur, my family doctor from Baltimore. Come on in to my house on Mockingbird Lane. Here information both of the characters already know is spouted. Something that destroys the illusion of reality. I made the example obvious for illustrative purposes. So here's another example. This is from the opening of an episode from the old Perry Mason television show, which ran in the late 1950s. Who doesn't remember that? I know I used to watch those through the early 60s. In those days, expositional dialogue was often used to set up the hour-long dramas. In this episode, a man and woman are standing in a train compartment. The train is not yet moving. Harriet says, I still wish I were going to Mexico with you instead of staying here in Los Angeles. Lawrence says, This trip's going to be dangerous, Harriet. It's some of the most rugged terrain in the Sierra Madre Mountains. It's no place for a woman, especially my wife. It's almost no place for an amateur ar- archaeologist either. Thanks for coming with me as far as Cold Grove Station. You see what's happening? It's the writer shooting information to the viewers through expository dialogue. The first thing to look out for is a character saying anything that both the characters already know. In the above example, they both know they live in Los Angeles. They both know she's his wife. They both know he's an amateur archeologist. They both know he's going into the Sierra Madre Mountains. And they both know they're going as far as Cold Grove Station. Again, we understand why it was done within the confines of an hour TV drama for the 50s, but you're writing a novel. At a conference where I was teaching once, he says, a student turned in a manuscript with the following, used by permission. A woman, Betty, has been planting bombs to avenge the death of her son. She now has a forensic investigator. Kate, who has been closing in on her, tied up and is threatening to kill her. So this is taken from the example that he, uh, that he took from that uh, conference, writing conference of the manuscript. So he continues by reading this. Betty looked down at Kate. The triumphant smile on her face faded into a snarl at the mention of her son's death. Why do you care? And, she, and then the dialogue opens the quotes and says, because if my son had died as a result of finding out about something terrible that had happened to him, that I had kept hidden to protect him. I would want to blame the person responsible, she says. Kate thought she would try the empathy tactic. She did feel a great sorrow for Betty and her tragic story. She watched as Betty returned her statement with a hard stare. Here in this tense moment, Kate has revealed to Betty facts about the case, he says, but the dialogue sounds unnatural. The long line has information stuffed into it, but it feels like it's for the reader's benefit rather than the character's. I told, so he continues by saying, I told the student to go back and cut all dialogue that is not absolutely true to the character and the emotional beats. What would either of them really say? So what's the right way to handle expositional dialogue, he asks. First, you must determine just how much exposition you really need, he says. Especially toward the front of your novel. Here's one of my a- axioms and I hope I'm not mispronouncing it. It's the A-X-I-O-M-S. Act first, explain later. Readers will wait a long time for explanatory material. If there is solid action going on. In fact, by not revealing the reasons behind certain actions and dialogue, you create mystery. That works in any genre. Readers love to be left wondering. Second, once you know what you need to reveal, put it into a tense dialogue exchange. In other words, hide the exposition within confrontation. Let's say you have a former lover's meeting at their 30th high school reunion. A less careful writer might do it this way. So let's, let's uh, give you another example of what he wrote. And this is what, what he has here. So it's, it's kind of funny because my name is Sylvia, but this is, a, this is something he wrote here. He saw Sylvia across the room. His cheeks heated up. After that night at the cabin he had never called her again. He'd avoided her at school. He would practically run from her if he saw her in the hall. She had not come to the first two reunions much to his relief but now here she was coming toward him. Hello Sam she said. Hi Sylvia he said. Nice to see you again that's fine it works it gets the information across but what if it happened this way sam felt a tap on his shoulder and turned around hello sam his mouth fell open cat got your tongue sylvia aren't you going to give me a hug what oh sure he gave her a hug and felt like he was holding a block of ice so he gives two examples let's see what james scott bell says there isn't that there isn't that better now sylvia said better why didn't you call me oh geez sylvia why are your cheeks pink sam something you want to tell me i know you can tell me why you didn't call a ton of information has been delivered here you can supplement the dialogue with actions and inner thoughts the reader doesn't need to get all the information at the beginning in fact it creates more discomfort if they don't know all of what's going on ori hit, he continues, was a paperback original writer from the 50s and 60s who wrote what were politely called what were politely called steamy pot boilers. But he knew his craft. Here is some exposition. In his novel Add Flesh to the Fire, a man's ex-wife returns to him. But he wants nothing to do with her. She has just offered herself to him physically. What you came here for, baby, you could pick up in any Bar. Shut up. I won't shut up. Why do you think I am? Nuts. You run off with my brother. Get a divorce. He was better than I was. You said. And two years later you show up. You want me to roll out the red carpet. You want me to stand on my head. I don't blame you for being bitter. Bitter doesn't describe it. She tried to reach up and touch my face but I jerked my head aside. So that's another example. Another type of exposition relates to plot points. Why for example is everyone after the blackbird in Dashiell Hemet's the Maltese Falcon one of the characters Casper Gutman explains Mr S- Mr Spade have you any conception of how much money can be made out of that blackbird no the fat man leaned forward again and put a bloated pink hand on the arm of Spade's chair well sir if i told you by god if i told you half you'd call me a liar Spade smiled. No, he said. Not even if I thought it. But if you won't take the risk, just tell me what it is and I'll figure out the profits. The fat man laughed. You couldn't do it, sir. Nobody could do it. That hadn't had a world of experience with things of that sort and he paused impressively. There aren't any other things of that sort. His bulbs josted one another as he laughed again. He stopped laughing abruptly. His fleshy lips hung open as laughter had left them. He stared at Spade with an intentness that suggested myopia. He asked, "You mean you don't know what it is?" Amazement took the throatness of his voice. Spade made a careless gesture with his cigar. "Oh hell," he said lightly. "I know what it's supposed to look like. I know the value in life. Life, you put pe- people. I know the value in life. You you people put on it." I don't know what it is. Notice what Hammett does here, he says, James Scott Bell continues, he uses dialogue to convey the value of the blackbird, but not in one big lump. He does it, he doles it out in a conversation that has breaks self interruptions and actions. That way the dialogue and the scene itself never seems static. Few pages later, he continues, Gutman tells the whole story of the Maltese Falcon in what is essentially a speech. Hammett uses new paragraphs virtually without interruption. The key there is that the information itself is interesting. So if you have a character, make a speech, make sure he isn't a bore. So, so far we've covered in this chapter three, which is pretty lengthy and, and, and I suggest you review it and go through the examples, is the reveal story information, the art of true dialogue. And he gives some examples, and he talks about exposition. And we started with Frank, being a box boy at Jelson. And then you can do the more artful way to reveal information, which is simply feeding the exposition. And he gives an example of the show, the Perry Mason television show in the 1950s and 60s. And then you kind of see what is happening and the he mentions this the writer shooting information to to the viewers through expository dialogue so and then you know here um, the next one is the one where the Betty the one that uh, he mentions about the student at a conference and the student turning in about a woman who's been plotting to avenge the death of her son and here he says Kate is revealing too much, too many facts on here about the case. The dialogue doesn't sound natural, so he stuffed too much information. So he tells the student to go back and rewrite everything. And then he gives us an example of the of the two ways to kind of hide the exposition within a confrontation. He gives the example of, of the high school reu- the 30th high school reunion. And the first one. A lot of information is revealed between Sylvia and Sam. In the second one, it's more about figuring it out and and then going from there. A ton of information has been delivered. You can supplement the dialogue with actions and inner thoughts. So he gives two examples of it. And then he goes into the Ori hit uh, c- uh, a paperback original writer from the 50s who wrote the uh, uh what they politely call steamy pot boilers and he talks about a husband whose wife wants to come back to him and the exchange that goes there. So he talks about that and then about Mr. Spade and the Maltese Falcon and he goes into that explanation and then and about the way that um, the dialogue conveys the value of the Blackbird but not in one big lump. It's more about conversation that breaks into self-interruptions and actions. And one of the things I've learned as an editor is that you have to break away from just narrative and a little bit of dialogue in between, not constant dialogue, but break it up into in between, which is something I do a lot when I write my books as well. And I've learned because at the beginning, it it almost seemed like all I did was write dialogue. So uh, those of you that are familiar with my book, closure and chasing clarity, and uh, now the Diary of the Broken Father you will see differences in the way that I try to break away from the different dialogue so that was the first section now we move on to and I I, I uh, advise you uh, uh, with these writing tips I'm giving you here at the Sylvia Stein power hour is to as a writer author new new writer to take examples uh, take you know go and, and try to implement these different things in the Dazzling Dialogue. Get the book by James Scott Bell. Practice these exercises with a section on, on these the chapter 3 that I just discussed. And now we move on to reveal character. So we move on here. I'm going to cover probably just the, this these two sections. I'm going to try to get into the next one, but I don't want to overwhelm the, the listeners with too much so this way you can go back and practice and we you know and review and if you want to comment or write me an email in regards to these shows um you can write me at the silstein07 at gmail.com i am trying to set up a gmail account just for the podcast but for now if you want any information or you want to comment on these shows that i've been doing for writing um you may do so at sylvia uh, or silstein s-y-l-s-t-e-i-n-0-7 at gmail.com so now we move on to reveal character and here he says james scott bell says here's another exchange from the maltese falcon where the hard bitten gumshoe sam spade is paid a visit in his office by Joel Cairo, a small bone dark man of medium height, the fragrance of Sharp with him. Sit down, Mr. Cairo, he says. Cairo bowed elaborately over his hat, said, I thank you in a high pitched thin voice and sat down. He sat down primely, crossing his ankles, placing his hat on his knees and began to draw up his yellow gloves. Spade rocked back in his chair and asked, Now what can I do for you, Mr. Cairo? May a stranger offer condolences for your partner's unfortunate death? Thanks. May I ask, Mr. Spade, if there was, as the newspapers inferred, a certain uh, relationship between that unfortunate happening and the death a little later of the man, Thursby? Spade said nothing in a blank-faced, definite way. Cairo rose and bowed. I beg your pardon he sat down and placed his hands side by side palms down on the corner of the desk more than idle curiosity curiosity made me ask that mr spade i am trying to recover an uh ornament that has been shall we say mislaid i thought and hoped you could assist me spade nodded with eyebrows lifted to indicate attentiveness we can tell a lot about these two characters says uh, James Scott Bell says just from the dialogue who talks like Cairo someone of breeding and a certain air of snobbiness Spade on the other hand says exactly one word when the conversation gets going the other times he reacts in silence character can also be revealed through relationships Charles Lederer he says wrote the screenplay for the Howard Hawks classic His Girl Friday that was uh, came out in 1940 The movie was based on a famous play, The Front Page, 1928, by Ben Hetch and Charles MacArthur. Heck has long been considered one of the great dialogue masters. The play is about a newspaper reporter, Hildy Johnson, and his editor, Walter Burns. Burns wants to keep Hildy on the paper because he's he's such a great reporter. Hildy is going to quit the business to get married. The brilliant move of the film was to turn Hildy into a woman who was once married to Burns. Notice in the following exchange how much we learn about the characters characters. Some of it is by action such as when Burns doesn't light Hildy's cigarette as a gentleman would, but tosses her matches. The details about their relationship come through dialogue that is not angry but is subtly tense. Each character is vying for advantage, and it, it goes on and it says. Hildy says, May I have a cigarette, please? Burn reaches into his pocket, extracts a cigarette, and tosses it on the desk. Hildy reaches for it. Hildy says, Thanks. A match? Burns delves into pockets again, comes up with matchbox, match box, tosses it to Hildy, who catches it deftly and strikes the match. Burn says, How long is it? Hildy finishes lighting her cigarette, takes a puff, and fans out the match. How long is what, Miss Hildy? Burns says, you know what, how long since we've seen each other? Hildy, let's see, I was in Reno six weeks, then Bermuda, oh, about four months, I guess, seems like yesterday to me. Burns says, maybe it was yesterday. Been seeing me in your dreams? Hildy, no, mama doesn't dream about you anymore. Walter, you wouldn't know the old girl now. Burns, oh yes, I would, i know you anytime. Burns and Hildy, any place, anywhere? Hildy, you're repeating yourself. That's the speech you made the night you proposed. Anytime, any place, anywhere? Burns, I noticed. You still remember it. Hildy, I'll always remember it. If I hadn't remembered it, I wouldn't have divorced you. Burns, you know, Hildy, I sort of wish you hadn't done it. Hildy, done what? Burns, divorce me. It sort of makes a fellow lose faith in himself, it almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Hildy, Holy mackerel, look, Walter, that's what divorces are for. Nonsense. You've got the old-fashioned idea that divorces are something that lasts forever, till death us do part. Why a divorce doesn't mean anything today. It's only a few words mumbled over you by a judge. We've got something between us. Nothing can change. I suppose that's true in a way. I am fond of you, Walter. I often wish you weren't such a stinker. Now that's a nice thing to say. Well, why did you promise me you wouldn't fight the divorce and then try and gum up the whole works? Well, I meant to let you go, but you know, you never miss the water till the well runs dry. When revealing character through dialogue, consider, as you can see, vocabulary. What is the educational background of your characters? This is what James Scott Bell says. What words would they know that correspond to that background? What if you have a character of limited education? attempting to use big words to build himself up. This is also an indicator of character, or it may be that the character is striving in all good conscience to better his station in life. The point is, considerable vocabulary as one aspect to deepen your own understanding of character. The syntax, when a character does not speak English as a first language, syntax the order of words. It is the best way to indicate that. For example, a newly arrived Bosnian might say, Can you tell me, please, where is bathroom? Syntax can also be part of a character's attempt to speak in a heightened way. Our old friend Joe Cairo, as we saw, he says, in the Maltese Falcon, says, No, no, our private conversations have not been such that I am anxious to continue them. Forgive me for speaking so bluntly, but it is the truth. Regionalisms, he says, he continues, Do you know what part of the country your character comes from? How do they talk there? I'm from LA and I still can't figure out what supper is. But people from Mississippi seem to have no problem with that. Then peer groups. Groups that band together around a specialty. Law, medicine, surfing, skateboarding. Have pet phrases they toss around. These are great additions to authenticity. The best way to find them is to interview people from such a group and just ask them. So he goes into, after we read the uh, screenplay here, His Girl Friday and the, the front page. And then we talk about Hilde and Walter. He goes into the different things you can use for your dialogue. When revealing character through dialogue, you consider vocabulary, syntax, regionalism, and peer groups. So. So far on this chapter, chapter three, we learned story weaving, the true art of dialogue. We've covered revealing story information and revealing the character. And I'm going to break it up into probably three or four parts, probably four parts so I can discuss, set the tone, set the scene and reveal theme in the next section. Today I covered story information and I want you to practice on that. Get the book, How to Write Dazzling Dialogue, The Fastest Way to Improve Any Manuscript by James Scott Bell and go into the sections we've covered. So far it's chapter two and chapter three, part of chapter three and then also reveal character that's what we covered today. I really hope that these writing segments are helping you. I have noticed a big turnout in the um on the readers and listeners and those of you that have downloaded the episodes. As I said, it's a new name, the Sylvia Stein Power Hour, but it's still uh formally the Sil Stein Author Channel, it's still reflective. Uh, for authors, writers, beginning writers, those that need help with their writing, uh, for also for editing purposes as well, we'll have segments on that, and also interviews, author interviews, and different types of interviews, and also promos for my latest books. And I really hope you'll continue to tune in to this, uh, the Sylvia Stein Power Hour, uh, here at Podbean.com. I hope you enjoy this second part of the Dazzling Dialogue, which will be available today. And it'll also be available on iTunes and Google Play for those of you that uh, have a mobile device um, and wanna access it through that. Again, this is uh, author Sylvia Stein. I'm happy to have been with you today on this happy Wednesday. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Again, if you have any questions on the material of the writing tips or you wanna hear different types of, uh, of more advice on different types of segments we can do, please go ahead and email me at silstein07 at gmail.com. I hope you all have a wonderful day and thank you for tuning in. We'll be back uh, next week where I'll cover the chapter, the section three and I'll continue on chapter three of the how to write dazzling dialogue by James Scott Bell. And if you haven't gotten it, it is available through Amazon. And, uh, and I, well, I purchased it through Amazon, through the Kindle store, and I plan to get the paper back soon. Cause I know that that's probably a lot easier to explain the page numbers, but a lot of us still rely on the Kindle, which are, is, is also good. So I suggest you read chapters two and three, maybe next time you'll have the book and you can follow along. And I suggest you cap you try to, uh, use some examples, try to, Uh, write out some of what uh, James Scott Bell said and I hope this really helped you today. You all have a wonderful day and thank you again for tuning in and we'll see you next week for another amazing podcast.